Welcome to the Education for Social Change podcast. I am Lucas Walrich, and in this podcast, I'm interviewing educators, researchers, innovators, policymakers, and entrepreneurs to hear how they are trying to shape education to make the world a better place, one way or the other. In this episode, I'm speaking with Mia Lianege about decolonizing universities. Recently, quite a few universities have seen large student protests to take down statues that are part of a very unpleasant colonial legacy. However, truly decolonizing universities requires a lot more. And Mia recently published a report together with the Higher Education Policy Institute, for which she interviewed a wide range of people involved in decolonization efforts. In this conversation, we talk about what decolonization means, how it poses a big challenge for universities, but also holds a lot of promise to make university better for everyone. Of course, for students from disadvantaged backgrounds who are currently excluded all too often, but also for others who can benefit from truly engaging with a wider range of perspectives. I very much enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation with Mia and took away a lot of ideas for my own academic practice. So I hope you will enjoy it too. So, Mia, thanks for taking the time. And I just wanted to start uh, with decolonization as a as a concept and ask you what what brought you to it. How did you start to engage with that? Yeah, thanks, and thanks for having me, Lucas. So, I was really brought to decolonization kind of by accident. I was a first year student at university, um, doing my undergrad at Oxford in history, and I'd got really interested in access and outreach initiatives. So. I was doing a lot of work with prospective students. Um, I was thinking about running to be the access officer at my college for next year and really hadn't interrogated issues of race too much at all. I'm mixed race. My dad was born here, but his family is from Sri Lanka and my mum is white. But I'd never really been given a space to even explore what my mixed heritage meant to me. But it came to the summer after my first year and I had a group of friends who had just started this new movement called Common Ground. And they were looking to recruit somebody to help them with that movement to kind of cover a lot more of the sort of, I suppose, class aspects and the access aspects of that, um, because they were forming this movement that was about challenging issues of racism and classism and also colonialism and its legacy in Oxford. So I kind of came into the movement that way, but very quickly started being really interested in everything they were doing, not just in race. Um, and I went on to become co-chair of that movement in most of my second year at university. And I've just stayed, yeah, really engaged in all those issues ever since. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I'll link to the Common Ground uh, manifesto also in the, in the show notes. What did you find most intriguing there in the beginning? So I understand that one thing was kind of exploring your own identity a bit. What were other things? Yeah, so it definitely, on the subject of my own identity, made me think very critically about why I had not fully engaged with my identity up to that point. And I think a lot of the reasons for that were because I hadn't been kind of forced to through my education. Um, I hadn't thought about my relationship to um, Sri Lanka, for example, and I hadn't thought about how colonialism really looms large in my family's history. So that was the first thing. Um, I was also really kind of attracted to it and and wanted to find out new things because I was really interested in, as I say, access and outreach, but I wasn't thinking intersectionally really about these issues. So for me, decolonization as a topic um, really allowed me to think about how my university interacted with race and what impact that has at kind of every level. And as I know you've seen from the report, the report explores so many different aspects of race and decolonization at universities, all the way through from curricula to student experience to staff experience. So yeah, I really, from that initial moment, started to get a sense of how expansive this issue was. And then I just, I couldn't look away after that point. Yeah, yeah, and you haven't really. I mean, the, what the, the way I found out about your interest was through that report just published by the Higher Education Policy Institute, where you looked at decolonization quite, quite broadly. In terms of the reasons for decolonization and the attempt to get people on board with it, what would you say is the promise? What can kind of individuals, universities and society more broadly gain from decolonizing? 
Yeah, it's a large question and I'm glad you've asked it. I think, and it's, well, it's related to the fact that there are quite a lot of misconceptions about what decolonization is and a lot of misconceptions leading to the idea that decolonization is something which benefits only students of colour. Now, decolonization does have a really transformative effect for students of colour because it allows them to see history, for example, if that's your chosen field or really any field, in their own image. And it also allows them to interact academically in a way that really plays to their strengths and plays to the ways that they see the world, rather than asking students of colour to kind of funnel their experiences into a very kind of white-centric and uh, Eurocentric method of learning as well as content. So that's one thing. But the real promise of decolonizing is that it actually improves universities academically and pedagogically and pastorally. Decolonizing really changes the culture of a university because it allows these innovative and new ideas about what our society means and how we can approach issues of our past or our present, etc., really ask us to explore those things in a new light. So decolonization provides a lens through which universities can think about the future. And so it means that it improves the experiences of students of colour, yes, but it improves the experiences of anybody who is interested in academic rigour in terms of what is taught, and also pedagogical rigour to make sure that all the students and all the those who are teaching students are absolutely giving and receiving the best learning and the learning that is most, I guess, academically challenging. I think there's an idea with decolonization that it kind of dumbs down or reduces the rigour of courses, whereas it's certainly my view that bringing in more perspectives that challenge existing ones only increases what people can learn. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think there the, the practical question then is how you can even bring in more things in the very condensed programs that are there at most universities, and I think particularly at Oxford. I think we both have experienced the undergraduate situation there where you have page-long reading lists and you don't even know kind of where to start. So I think one misconception or one fear is also just that, you, that decolonization is, is a call to try to cram more and more content into these programs. How would you respond to that or how would you deal with that? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question, actually, because obviously anything that anyone is going to do to change a curriculum of any type is going to include some chopping and changing and some reassessing about what is important. But what I think is really crucial to understand about decolonization is that this isn't about simply adding stuff in or indeed simply about taking things away. A lot of people worry that You know, for example, a university like Oxford would lose um, its important kind of academics and and publishing record in something like English medieval history. And I suppose I have two answers to that. The first part of the answer is that decolonization need not mean cramming more things into already saturated reading lists. It's about a fundamental reassessment of what goes into those reading lists in, in the first place. So you're not really taking something that exists already and uh, trying to kind of add new things on it, which only serves to kind of oversaturate the whole topic and confuse students. But instead, you're looking at what you have already, stripping it back and saying, what perspectives do I need to bring? So say, you know, you have a topic, you have a week in a reading list, as, as you say, you and I are both familiar with. It's not about being given two pages now instead of one, but it's about that one page making sure that it covers all of the aspects of that topic that perhaps previously our reading list might not have done. You know, I certainly remember getting reading lists where you'd have five or six books that actually cover the same topic or have very similar perspectives. But your tutor is very endearingly convinced that all of those are really relevant. I think a decolonized reading list would look more like having more perspectives, each of them making a really, really valuable contribution. So that's kind of the first thing. And my second answer to that question which is the one that is slightly more difficult to convince people of, I suppose, or it's the more uncomfortable truth, is that, yes, there is an aspect to which decolonizing does mean changing what your reading list is. And in fact, I think the fact that people think it means cramming things in, I think that often betrays that people think 
that that's the only approach. Unfortunately, that well, I don't actually think it is unfortunate. Um, but the approach that we really need to take is, as I say, reassessing what's on that list. So it might mean, yeah, that we have to take away some things that are on it already. But we don't take away the most important things. And decolonization also gives us an opportunity to think about what it is we're really trying to communicate when we're teaching students at university. And if we want to make a stance, as a lot of institutions are recently, making a stance that they want to be anti-racist or they want to include more diverse viewpoints, universities know better than anybody else that resources are limited. And if they really want to make that commitment, then they do have to make some changes. Um, What I hope people can understand from my report and from our conversation is that making those changes doesn't mean you lose something. It actually means you gain something. Yeah, I'd like to understand a bit more what, what these changes are about in your perspective, because on the cover of the report, you have this nice picture of a protester demanding to put colonialism on the curriculum. I think that, that makes a lot of sense, right? There are certainly parts of history that are just uncomfortable and are not talked about very much, but that's probably only a starting point. What is the kind of curriculum change that you are after? Yeah, so curricular changes are definitely widespread. And the, as you say, referring to the cover photo, yeah, putting colonialism on the curriculum is a really important thing. But it's not just putting content on the curriculum that isn't always covered. So aspect, I mean, aspects of that would be, you know, decolonization is not only about race. It was hard for me to squeeze into an 11,000 word report all of the different aspects. But This is also talking about bringing in queer perspectives, bringing in the perspectives of women, non-binary and transgender people, um, bringing in perspectives that, for whatever reason, have been erased or not been platformed in history thus far. So it is about bringing in that new content, but it's also about changing the way we look at existing content. And to take the example of colonialism, And in fact, the so recently there was the petition to the UK government about introducing colonialism in schools as a topic. And I read the government's response to that. And the response was essentially based on signposting a couple of courses that already exist. And forgive me because I'm going to forget the exact name of the unit, but one of the units that they signposted was one that was called something like Empire and Commerce colon written year X to year Y. And to me, that is a perfect example of a unit that may cover the idea of the British Empire. But precisely because it is focused on Britain, it is going to have certain perspectives, certain maxims, certain ways of thinking about that period, which centre Britain, the British experience. And unfortunately, because of the way British history is still taught, that is a white experience. Um, what we're asking for with curriculum change for decolonization is maybe taking a unit like that that's at a university and instead teaching it through the lens of a particular colony, for example. That to us is is decolonized history because it's challenging the ways in which we teach things as well as the pure content that we're teaching. Yeah, that's a very interesting example. To what extent is that limited by what's available? Because I imagine that also takes places different demands on kind of how you approach history and what kind of sources you look at. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I suppose there are two prongs to your question. The first one being about kind of material and scholarly material and the other side being about sources. To tackle the sources question first, there are admittedly fewer, say, digital repositories for sources that don't already centre kind of the white experience, if you like. And obviously that's a problem with archives, which is far, far broader than what we can cover in our conversation. But there are increasingly available holdings for sources. Um, and also, it's about reading against the grain with existing sources. So it's about taking any source written by, say, you know, a Viceroy of India and looking at it through a different lens and with a different perspective and being more critical about what we see there. So that's the sources aspect. In terms of, so with history, which is my discipline, it would be historiography, but you know, whichever kind of field it is, the scholarly output um, really kind of leads into the third recommendation of the report, which is about funding research. We are seeing, and this is something that is often invisible outside of institutions, I think, because it's not platformed enough, is that there are a great number of really important 
especially young scholars doing decolonized work. And actually, I always find as soon as I am doing research, say, for my master's thesis or indeed for this report, and I'm thinking, oh, I really wish somebody had published on this issue. Whenever I go on Google Scholar and look it up, somebody has. It's just that people aren't um, investing the money or investing the publicity in making sure that those voices are heard. So while obviously decolonizing presents challenges, firstly, the rewards, I would say, are far, uh, far outweigh the challenges. But also that research is definitely existing somewhere if you look for it. The fact that you have to look a little harder, I think only outlines the fact that we need to institutionalize funding for um, research both by people of color and about people of color in a decolonized way in order that we can bring that research further to the surface, which of course then has a knock-on effect in all the courses we teach. Yeah, I find that a very convincing recommendation of the report that, that these topics need to need to be better funded and get greater attention. What I was wondering about though, is the, the focus on a pretty version of Black Studies, because what I personally understand decolonization to mean is to uh, have more equality between different viewpoints or different perspectives within the subjects. So I'm not sure if it's if it's actually helpful to have this separate box that's then not history, but that's Black Studies. Do you think there might be such a such a tension? I mean, I also don't know the the American experience well enough if if such programs lead to that kind of scholarship happening more outside the, the places where kind of mainstream researchers would look? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think what it's sort of predicated on is the idea that kind of, I suppose, the way to achieve that equality of viewpoints um, is by working within the structures that we already have. I kind of wish that was the case, but I think we can see already that working within the existing structures, it doesn't help. And I remember recently hearing an activist, a black activist, talking about the idea that specificity is revolution. What she meant by that is if you picture a woman in your mind, somebody says the word woman to you, if, especially if you're white, but unfortunately because of internalized racism for almost all people, the woman that you picture in your head is white. This is why intersectional feminism, in her example, is so important, because by specifying that the person that you need to think of and the person you need to uplift in your practices is black, you open up a whole new realm of possibility for how to improve the life of that black woman. To use that example here, the reason that something like black studies is so important is because it's not enough, it's been shown not to be enough to simply hope that kind of decolonized history, black history, you know, whatever specific area you're looking at, um, it's not enough to expect that it's just going to kind of come into being through the traditional academy. This is the same argument for historically black colleges and universities. It's the same argument for black only recruitment agencies. This is about providing a space where people of color, black people, people doing decolonized research can thrive and produce their research with specific resources targeted at them, which helps to mitigate some of the issues with, um, with systemic racism when people of color and black people are trying to interact within a white space. So black studies, you mentioned the US, black studies has been incredibly successful there. And in fact, I know that Goldsmiths, your own uni, is doing work on black studies as well and has a black literature program, for example. Um, and those causes are really effective because they give, well, they center the black perspective. That's the whole point of them. So you have a lot less struggle trying to find the black experience in something it's really powerful to be specific and to say that this is exactly the experience you want. And therefore, those departments then produce their own research and it becomes mainstream. You know, I think you mentioned the idea of black studies perhaps not being something mainstream. Well, at the moment, work that is de facto black studies is not mainstream because it's buried under all of the other output from the academy and it doesn't receive the funding it needs. I think from separate departments, you can really get increased visibility as well as better research. Yeah, but possibly increased visibility as a 
separate discipline. So just thinking of the Black Tudors book, and I'd actually be curious to hear your perspective on that, because at the moment it's kind of the poster child for a different perspective on, on history. But I think that kind of book wouldn't have been perceived as this kind of history contribution if it had come out of a Black Studies context rather than a history context. Um, that's interesting you would say that. I think that, from my understanding anyway, of Black Studies departments, although I hasten to add that I am perhaps sadly not part of one, <laughs> um, I can't give a full perspective on it, but I believe that Black Studies is a discipline that brings in people from all different disciplines in the humanities mm. and social sciences. And therefore, what you might have at a university is somebody has a dual holding in history and in Black Studies, um, or PhD students are joint affiliated with the history department and the black studies department. So I don't think there's a sense where what's happening in black studies is just not communicating with history at all. I think it's more kind of allowing more books like the black Tudors to be produced. You know, I think the fact that it's a great book, obviously, and has made real waves. Um, I'm thinking also about um, David Olusoga's book about uh, black British history those books are really important, but I think we'd probably see a lot more of them if there was more dedicated funding and dedicated spaces for black history to be produced. Um, mm. I think the reason those those books have broken through over time, but in order to really institutionalise the continuation of that research, we really need to invest in these kind of specific departments. Yeah, it's very interesting for me to hear that. And what you're saying about kind of dual appointments is something I find very convincing because it gives people the recognition and the space and the funding to focus on black studies, but it also gives them a grounding in a discipline where kind of other people are likely to read their work as well, who might not be entirely on board with the decolonizing agenda yet. And I think with that, we, we already started talking about the staff experience but what you were saying, it's it's just very hard to, to research these topics in, in white institutions. What is it that makes an institution white? Because I think for many people, especially white people looking at an institution like Oxford, wouldn't say this is a white institution, given the increasing diversity of the people who are around. Yeah, wow, what a great question. So whiteness is not just about a colour, a skin colour. It's about structures. And I think... The fact that white people look at, I mean, to be honest, the vast majority, if not all institutions in Britain, and they don't see what is meant by whiteness, only proves the point. The idea of kind of a institutionally white institution, which is, I mean, you know, we don't have to use the word white in other ways to say systemically racist. Um, those institutions are designed to privilege white voices and white perspectives and therefore, white people can't even tell that what they're engaging in is privileging them, because to them, it looks like equality. Unfortunately, to people of colour, and specifically black people as well, who are in those institutions, it looks very different. I mean, to use an example from, from the report that kind of talks about what whiteness really means in a practical context, I spoke with somebody who has worked on uh, decolonization issues, and their pseudonym is, is Nicole, and, and Nicole talked about how she's delivered workshops at her previous university to what are, because of the makeup of university staff, majority white um, people that she's delivering workshops to, and that her perspective is continually kind of shot down. She's got to the point where she now has to deliver any of her workshops with a white member of staff with her. Now, the fact that having a white member of staff with her prevents some of the questions and the challenges that she gets if she delivers something on her own, to me, that's a really good example of what a white institution means. A white institution is one where the voices and perspectives of black people and people of colour are disproportionately viewed as less important. People find it more easy to challenge them. They experience various microaggressions. Again, with Nicole, she will sometimes have academics come to her asking who leads on the work she does. And she says, well, it's me. I'm the one who, lead, who leads on it. This is not a question that would be asked of somebody who is white, especially not a white man, um, which is why these issues are so intersectional. But yeah, so what an institution that is white looks like is one where if you are black or a person of colour, you find all of the things which should be possible in, in your institution, whether that's progression, whether that's funding, 
whether that's even just having your voice and your perspective taken into account, it is much, much harder for black people and people of colour to achieve the same ends that white people can do with far less effort. Yeah. And something that I hadn't thought of before reading your report was this difference between equality, diversity and inclusion initiatives and decolonization. And I think one of your um, conversation partners made this point that it can't be about making individuals succeed in white institutions by basically becoming intellectually white. Um, so I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, it's so great you mentioned that, actually, because rereading the report before speaking to you, that was also one of the arguments that really jumped out at me. And it's a subtle one. So to explain it a little more, especially for listeners who might not have read the report yet, the idea at the moment in a lot of institutions is when they talk about diversity, they confuse it with decolonization, which speaks to one of the recommendations of the report. And as they do that, they talk about um, decolonizing the university looking like things like closing the black attainment gap that exists in UK universities. Um, what a lot of my respondents were really keen to explain is that while closing the black attainment gap is obviously a really, really crucial thing that we need to do, closing the black attainment gap alone doesn't actually solve the issues of systemic racism and of kind of colonial perspectives that you and I are discussing. Closing the black attainment gap without any curriculum changes essentially just means that you have succeeded in making sure that black people and people of colour have assimilated fully into reproducing whiteness in their answers um, and in their scholarship. And when you think of it like that, it's quite a dystopian idea. One might argue that part of the reason the black attainment gap exists is because black students can't find themselves or see themselves in what they're learning and that the ways that they're being taught platform white voices so the only real way to fix that black attainment gap in a sustainable way is to change what's being taught and how it's being taught. And yeah, I think as one of my respondents put it, um, people think that you can kind of put a Band-Aid on a bullet wound by adding Toni Morrison to the reading list and, and by closing the black attainment gap. But even if the black attainment gap being closed, you know, even though that's a great thing, it doesn't solve racism. In fact, in a really kind of disturbing way, it entrenches it further. Yeah. Um, I know you have come across Matthew Sied's recent book on uh, rebel ideas. That's all about kind of diverse thinking and how it enables better performance across all kinds of sectors. But one point that he makes, and I might be pushing it a bit further than what, what he explicitly says, but it's this idea that the power of diversity, the instrumental power of diversity comes from cognitive diversity, so from people actually thinking in different ways. Enhancing demographic diversity, so getting more minority people into your space, might contribute to that, but it might also just not contribute to that at all if your culture is so strong that everyone assimilates. And in a sense, um, when you were talking about how the decolonization adds rigor and perspectives and all these things, I was wondering if this approach to diversity getting more people in who look different and then making them all think the same isn't actually completely undermining the point. Yeah, I mean, you're raising the raw points here and I respect it. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a central reason why diversification is not the same as decolonization and that your diversification efforts will only be effective if you also decolonize. So, mm. I mean, what I'm keen to say here, especially to you know, people who work in HE who really value their diversity efforts. I am certainly not saying that diversity is a bad thing. In fact, it's transformative. But it is only transformative if you give people the space to thrive in the space that you're, like, adding them to. And mm. too often what happens is that you get, uh, say, black students somewhere like Oxford, which is obviously the university that, that I was at. And as the report talks about, there's certain uh, groups like black centering and black empowerment groups in the university like Afro-Caribbean societies where sometimes the people you meet there might warn you about certain things, warn you not to bring up a certain perspective, warn you to write your exam answers in a certain way so that you can get the best degree you can and leave without being subjected to some of the, the racism and the microaggressions and indeed lower marks that might come to black students who, who dare to think in a different way to what the institution provides for them. And so it's a very kind of 
it's an uncomfortable thing to hear, I think, for a lot of universities who hope that admitting, say, black students is enough. But the reason the title of my report encompasses curricula, pedagogy and culture is because you have to have a culture change that's informed by decolonization in order that all of the things that the report talks about in terms of decolonization can come to fruition. So, yeah, it is obviously a great step, but it is not enough to be adding people of colour to your institution if your aim is only to mould them into your view of what a good student is, which inevitably, if you have not decolonised your institution, is a white student and probably a middle class one as well. Okay, so clearly lots of reasons to decolonize and lots of challenges to uh, to actually getting there. What would you say is happening at the moment? Because obviously lots of universities are talking about it, but how far are we? Yeah, a lot of universities are talking about it. And actually, you know, one of the things that came when I was interviewing the 16 people that I spoke to for this report is that a lot of people did say, wow, you know, as we got our coffee and we sat down, I'm really gratified that we're having this discussion because I really didn't think in this decade or in maybe even in my lifetime, we would be able to have a discussion about writing a report for a national mainstream think tank about decolonizing. Um, I think that's a really important thing to note is that obviously the fact that decolonization has become a bit of a buzzword presents us with a lot of opportunities, but it also prevents us presents us with challenges and it presents us with the challenge to make sure that the decolonizing perspective and the decolonizing drive aren't sort of diluted by misconceptions and by fears about what it means. Um, so where I would say that we are, and this is, you know, my kind of personal view from having spent a lot of time in these spaces. And of course, as you referenced, because of very recent events, universities are now even more keen to start engaging on these issues, is I think what you now have, and especially in the last few months, um, is a lot of people who are very, very well-meaning, who are beginning to get a sense that there is something about what's going on in their institution that isn't working. And so you now have people coming to the table who are a lot more eager to learn about what they can do. But at this moment, which is obviously why I wrote the report in the first place, is that those conversations stop once you've had discussions which are relatively comfortable. So pretty much everyone can agree now that they think that racism is a bad thing. They can agree that something like slavery was a bad thing. And they can also agree that it would be great to have more black employees. They might even think about ways that they can encourage black employees to apply, look into contextual recruiting. But there's a lot less discussion about how to make those people welcome when they are there And I think what that means is that that issue of decolonizing doesn't really get to the fore of discussions. The only time decolonizing is mentioned, and it is mentioned as a buzzword, is when you talk about curriculum, which is great. But what it's usually used as is a byword for diversity. So to a lot of universities, they talk about decolonization as something to mention in board meetings, which sounds good and makes sure that everybody knows that they're trying to have a more inclusive curriculum. But it doesn't really end up translating into anything concrete because what it means is, you know, for example, you take the faculty reading list on a certain issue and you make sure that, I don't know, 15% of it is black authors. That doesn't decolonize, it only diversifies. So that's kind of my view of, of discussions at the moment is that It's mentioned as a word, decolonization, but the full kind of very capacious definition of what it means is not being fully interrogated. And I think that's part of why institutions are finding responding to this moment so difficult, because the tool of decolonization is right there. And it's one that a lot of universities are yet to tap into as they should. Yeah. And I guess in my perspective, that's partly, and you alluded to it in your report as well, because of the workload academics face and then of course of the context now with people scrambling to move education online um, and then we have, we're still in ongoing dispute of the universities and colleges union against the employers about workload but also about uh, some of the uh, well-being issues that, that, that we have talked about so where would you say can we find kind of the time and, and energy to actually do do something Yeah. And I mean, it's it's interesting because I've been doing this research for a long time. And when 
COVID happened, I suppose is, is the verb we're all using for it. Myself and my colleagues at Happy were thinking hard about what this report would offer and how hard it might be to convince people that this is the moment to act when there are so many other things going on. But what I think is so interesting about that is that, you know, barely a few months later, George Floyd was murdered. And mm. the whole discussion about race in Britain, which is obviously where we're talking about in this conversation, um, completely changed and was flipped on its head. I think what that shows is that when something is urgent or when it's viewed as urgent, there are ways to make sure that it comes through in, in how universities work, for example. And I think that's something that's really important to know. I'm not saying that COVID doesn't seriously impact on academics' already difficult workloads, because it does. And I'm not saying that decolonization is an easy feat that doesn't include a lot of work, because it's not. Um, unfortunately, though, there are moments in history where you have to take a stand on a certain issue and you have to decide to prioritize it. And actually, the second recommendation of my report, it's the first word of it is reprioritize. And that's something that I'm really calling on universities to do is based on what really in this report, you know, is really quite raw and emotional testimony from people who know about these issues and have lived um, being an advocate for decolonization in their universities for a long time in various different perspectives. What you see is a real, as I say in the conclusion, silent crisis, a situation where black students and students of color and their counterparts in academia and in policy are not having their voices heard. And it's actually negatively impacting on the output of institutions. So when we think about how to adapt our university provision in this moment, both this anti-racist moment, or a moment I hope is anti-racist, um, and in this kind of pandemic-induced moment, we can think more critically about what our universities actually offer. Um, and I would argue that there is very little value in using this moment to kind of, I guess, tread water and then lose some of the things that should really be at the top of the list. I mean, for example, I've heard stories recently of, so if faculties are moving online and obviously certain things have to be, uh, you know, certain meetings are prioritised, that it's the meetings of groups that are talking specifically about race which are being cancelled or being told, oh, we don't have space for you in the team schedule. Now, for me, that is an exact example of where reprioritization is needed, because in this moment, I would argue more than ever, we really need to be holding those discussions. And I don't think that you can have a well-functioning university with good research output and good teaching output without it. In fact, the whole idea of the silent crisis is that at the moment, our universities aren't actually doing that. So there has to be a moment of reckoning somewhere. Um, and while I realise that COVID-19 represents an especially difficult moment, there will always be reasons to push decolonisation down to the bottom of the priority list. I hope what this report can do is show that that's no longer sustainable. Yeah, that makes sense. I think one thing we have seen in the, in the wake of George Floyd murder was actually some progress um, on some symbolic issues. So the Roads Must Fall campaign that seemed to have fallen really onto fairly deaf ears the first time round in Oxford, had a lot more success. And also at Goldsmith, where we had the student occupation last year that was partly about statues, not much happened until the protests intensified this year. And now probably some of these slave owner statues will also go. How do you see uh, the link between these symbols and the decolonization agenda? Do they matter? And how can they be more than just kind of token gestures? Yeah. So what's really interesting about a lot of the conversations that I've been having, not only since my report came out, um, but since George Floyd's murder and the perspective shifted again to be focusing on things like statues and icons, um, because I've worked with Common Ground, which essentially grew out of the gap left in the Oxford political landscape by Rose Must Fall, because Rose Must Fall kind of imploded the first time as a result of death threats they received, um, various kind of systemic issues, and also just people leaving and moving on. Common Ground was founded to kind of fill that space and take a slightly different approach to the same core aims. So people were ringing me up and wanting to talk to me about statues. 
And what I've said time and time again is that they are really important because they are a face of public history. And anyone who argues that a statue is a completely neutral form of, uh, I suppose, remembrance is completely misunderstanding the whole point of memory and history in the first place. There are decisions made about who is, you know, being memorialized. And statues are traditionally in our culture. I mean, they're quite literally on a pedestal. The idiom is, is there for us. So statues are really, really important for this reason, because they are monuments. However, to take the example of Cecil Rhodes statue, for example, which is the focus of the Rhodes Must Fall movement, the fact that Oriel College's governing body have now voted to have the statue removed after, I should add, a lengthy kind of review process that is now being put in motion. The fact that that vote happened is really, really important. And I don't want to diminish the importance of that victory because it shows that people are starting to think more critically about their history. And if the statue does come down, then it is really, really central in terms of decolonization discussions in Oxford. However, while it is a symbol of the wider debate, that's all it is, a symbol. What we really need to see is that the same kind of effort and, I suppose, attention that universities like Oxford and Goldsmiths are newly paying to their kind of iron and brass figures is to think really carefully about what is they're teaching in their institutions. I think, funnily enough, a lot of the arguments kind of against redressing sort of systemic racism as played out in statues is that, well, statues are only symbols, so what do they matter? My answer to that is, you're right, they are only symbols, but they are pretty much the only thing that we've been able to make any headway on because people are so reluctant to have the conversations about the much, much larger issues. So as much as I really respect and am happy about the activists who have been campaigning to have the Rose statue removed finally getting their wish, the Rose Must Fall movement was also never about statue. It was about rallying around a statue as a means for starting discussions about decolonization. So if a university came to me and said, hi, I want to keep my statue, but I also want to completely revolutionize and decolonize my entire university from top to bottom. The first question I'd ask is, if so, then why do you care about the statue? But my second and more important response would be, I'd much rather that than you got rid of the statue and you changed nothing else. So yeah, it's about systemic change to address systemic issues. Yeah, I think one thing that you portray in the report is that a lot of the discussion so far has been uh, triggered and shaped by student activists. Clearly for activists, it's easier to rally around a demand that's kind of measurable and clearly possible to satisfy, like take down a statue. Then these demands have a much broader systemic conversation. But based on your observations and your conversations, do you have any thoughts on what kind of strategies students can used to more effectively launch these conversations and, and get a systemic change to start? Yeah, hmm, it's a good question. I mean, one of the things that I would say is that I actually think student activism has been incredibly successful up to this point. It succeeded in getting decolonization onto the national agenda as a topic. And as one of my respondents, uh, well, a couple actually say in the report, they believe that decolonization as a discussion would not be in universities really at all um, unless students had kind of campaigned for it, which they have. So I suppose I wouldn't even say that, that students aren't being successful because I think at the moment they are really driving universities to reckon with these issues. But what I would say is that, and this is what I've learned as someone who's worked in activism and in advocacy, is that you have to find a way to make your movement sustainable. And what Common Ground has tried to do, for example, but loads of other movements have done this too, is try to um, build institutional memory within our own movements. What that allows is it allows for when students leave and, and things change, for movements to research, just as happened with the Rosemont School movement this year. It's absolutely crucial because it also sends the message to universities that these issues are not issues that a specific small group of students between X and Y years cared about, but are actually much, much larger issues that will not go away until the university makes some change. So I think something students can do is, is certainly make sure that these conversations are sustained, obviously, and a way to do that is through institutional memory. Um, another thing that students can do is 
try their best to engage with the universities on issues. But what's really difficult about asking students to do that is that it always is going to place a disproportionate burden on the people who should be learning rather than schooling their own universities, especially when those students are students who come from marginalised backgrounds, whatever particular intersectional issue they may face. Um, So I kind of refrain, I think, from giving other students more advice, firstly, because I still feel like a student activist myself and we're all just muddling along and, and doing our best. But also because I think what students really need to do is convince universities that this is something that they need to figure out. And then the university should be putting their money where their mouth is and paying people and investing in in new structures and new committees and new ways of reassessing these things. The, The goal is to transform the university. Therefore, the goal is to make sure that what activists want and is on the table doesn't just stay within activist circles. It becomes part of the university. But the only way to make sure that it becomes part of the university you know, in a full and undiluted way is to keep the pressure up. And I think institutional mm-hmm. memory helps with that. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And just one one reflection there is that I think there's a lot of promise in just rethinking pedagogy and rethinking course aims and reading lists, because it seems to me that quite often they aren't well articulated, they aren't kind of consciously colonial, but many things have just kind of grown and are now in place and maybe in addition to all the specific benefits of decolonizing, maybe this could also just make pedagogy better and more effective and yield better designed uh, curricula. But one point you make in the report is that often those skills are lacking. So we don't have all that many educational developers presently in, in university departments. How can that be addressed? Who do you think would be the people who are best able to lead on, on curriculum redesign? Yeah, I mean, I suppose this kind of two aspects to your question there. The first thing, the reflection, I just want to completely endorse and say that, yes, decolonization is going to have, I mean, I hesitate even to say byproducts because I think it is central to the attraction of doing decolonizing as a process. Um, But yeah, it completely revolutionizes pedagogy. And one of the things that I really expected when I started having conversations with people I interviewed for this report, for example, William, who is the chair of a humanities department at UK University, when I spoke to him, I was rather expecting him to talk me through the existing pedagogy in his department and perhaps, you know, why it needed to change or why he thought it didn't. What I wasn't expecting was what I got, which was that actually he didn't really have a strong idea about what the pedagogy in his department actually was. And really said to me, I'm not sure we've actually sat down and talked about that in a very long time. For me, that was a real shock because I realized that what we are rallying against as people in favor of decolonizing is not at all a well-thought-out structure. It's the very kind of organic, effects of a systemically racist society. On the one hand, that makes it harder to find all of the different heads of the dragon, if you like. But it does mean that we can really start to have very, very meaningful discussions about what our pedagogy is going to be, what we want it to be. And clearly, those conversations haven't happened before. So yeah, I think it really opens up a lot of a lot of different things for that. I think on the kind of uh, curriculum development side, it's another issue for sure that we really have a kind of lack of expertise in this country um, for people who know how to do this. But I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, it's certainly not a reason not to try because we do have a lot of people who do know about this stuff. And actually, what I've really noticed on, on platforms like Instagram since George Floyd's murder is a really increasing amount of resources that are available either for free or, you know, we should be paying for our black creators, you know, Venmo them some money as well. But people who have been doing work on this issue for years who have never got the recognition that they deserve. Um, Someone like Rachel Cargill, um, her resources are absolutely transformative. And if universities would really take what already exists and implement it without diluting it, you would see some real change. So, It is hard to kind of find bodies on the ground to do this work. But I would actually argue in the kind of COVID moment, we have more and more opportunities to seek out those perspectives internationally. 
from people who can work remotely to to help our universities. Um, and also, as the fifth recommendation of the report talks about, there is a whole mine of information and ideas coming from university student bodies um, and indeed the academics and the tutors who are already there. Now, they might not have the specific curriculum development knowledge, but we have to start teaching that somehow and somewhere. And what universities can really do, and another thing that you know I'm really trying to push with this report is that this is not a moment to feel paralysed by all the work there is to do because that doesn't really result in anything. What it is a moment to do is to start small and start with the kind of spirit of decolonization very much at the fore. That is a spirit of reassessment rather than additional subtraction. With that, I think you can really find some important interventions and, and opportunities when it comes to things like curriculum development. The expertise is there, it's just often universities aren't finding it. Yeah. Um, so we, we talk quite a bit about history and most of the conversation seems to have been around history because they are just the, I think it's most transparent, kind of what's wrong and how it can be addressed. In a preparation to this, I've been reflecting a bit on, on my education, especially in politics and philosophy, where clearly uh, white dead men were far too too dominant on the reading lists. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm just wondering what your perspectives are on, on other subjects and maybe also subjects outside of the humanities. What, what does decolonization look like there? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this question because as I mentioned earlier, it's hard to cram everything you want to cram into a report of this length. So I did do reflecting on on what decolonization looks like beyond the humanities, which is what this report focused on. And I have also tried to think critically about how it shows itself in disciplines outside of my own. I definitely preface this by saying that there will be people listening to this who have different specialisms than I, who will know far more about where meaningful interventions can be made to decolonize their disciplines. Um, but what I would say is that across the humanities, at least, there are really, really clear interventions that can be made if we think about the kind of core questions that decolonization demands of us. And to take one as an example, um, it's about kind of reassessing how we learn about certain perspectives. So, for example, you were talking about, yeah, a lot of dead white men on uh, the reading list for philosophy. Well, this would be about thinking, well, when we're trying to learn about, for example, epistemology, when we learn about that concept and all the different theories, whose voices are we calling on? And so that can really change the way that a course feels if you're listening to philosophy outside of, say, the Western perspective. So history is definitely a very kind of topical, um, and as you say, kind of more, the methods for decolonization are more transparent because we think about colonialism in the past. But what decolonization is as a concept is less specifically about the legacy of colonialism. Obviously, that's important. Um, but it's less about connecting to that specific time period in history, which obviously it's hard, you can bring that in in history, but it's harder to bring in in, say, philosophy. And it's more about the overall spirit of kind of teaching as if there was equity in how different perspectives are valued. And obviously the kind of colonialism project disrupted, um, I mean, obviously there wasn't really existing equity before, but it disrupted the potential for, say, black voices to be treated as equal to white ones because there was a very conscious subjugation. So that's kind of how I see it in the humanities. And, and actually, in terms of bringing equity to, to black voices, we can think about this in the sciences as well. Now, again, very much outside of my field, but if we think about things like medicine, for example, we already know the disproportionate Uh, effects that COVID-19 is, is having on communities of colour and especially black communities. That's not because black communities and communities of colour have a genetic defect that makes them die disproportionately from this disease. It's because the way that medicine is taught in this country, just like everything else is taught, is through a white lens. It makes it harder for doctors to treat black people and it uh, means that doctors are not kind of challenging their own internalized racism or their kind of unconscious racism, I should say, um, because unfortunately 
racism is only internalized if you are black yourself. But, you know, unconscious bias is not being interrogated. And what that creates is this really kind of shocking statistic where the real world effects of unconscious bias are shown because black people are considered less able to recover or they're um, or kind of less worthy of, of uh, recovery interventions, I should say. And part of that is because they're considered to have this kind of strange genetic strength, which is a legacy of eugenics and slavery that is just absorbed as part of medicine curricula. So that's another perhaps a science where it's easier to imagine decolonization than others. But to use it as an example, you know, it shows how all subjects need to have this perspective change. Because again, it's not about adding uh, or changing the content quite so much as it is changing how we view the existing content. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Um, I'll certainly do some research myself into psychology, which I'm teaching at the moment. Um, sure, there, there are people who have thought about decolonization in a lot more depth. Um, but I think one thing, as you're saying, is, is really thinking about kind of who, who the voices are and how the foundational voices are treated. Because there's definitely, uh, definitely this whole history of eugenics, for example, that's uh, certainly not dealt with enough. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, something like psychology, if you think about the fact that pretty much all of the kind of uh, medical or psychological discoveries that we've had after the slave trade began, a lot of that's been happening off the back of experimentation on black bodies, but also a lot of it motivated by racist and, um, and kind of eugenicist ideas even though now our diagnoses, say, for mental health issues, seem to be neutral, if you look at the history of how people arrived at those diagnoses, it's probably no wonder um, that black bodies are being ignored in the field of medicine and psychology and that people are not able to understand the psychological effects of things like systemic racism. What we're trying to change, I guess, with decolonizing is changing that kind of knowledge base to try and redress some of the inequality and inequity that's come from um, kind of systemically racist research in the past in all of these fields. Yeah, but I think one one area where I certainly see a need for contextualizing research more at the very least is all the research into the effects of systemic racism, microaggression, and so on. That's all driven by the very individualistic approach of psychology that tends to be about how do we fix individuals, which clearly doesn't do justice to the structural component of it all. Um, but in wrapping up, I always like, like to ask my guests uh, this kind of summary question, which is if you could have a billboard anywhere, any, anything on it, what would it say? Oof, that's a great question. And one that you should, <laughs> you should tell your guests in advance so they can think of the best and catchiest slogan. Um, I think my billboard would have and I you know I'd have to sift through my report to find one um but I think it would have a quote from one of my respondents something that is really raw and something which really gets at the heart of how people of color feel their institutions I think again of one of my respondents talking about how you can't put a band-aid on a bullet wound by slapping Tony Morrison on the reading list there's so many things you could add but the reason I say that is because I think one of the things really lacking in our decolonization discussions is the driving force to seek out the perspectives of people who are affected by these issues. It goes back to what we were saying before about kind of how a white institution doesn't look white to a white person. Um, it means we need to seek out what those black perspectives are and what those POC perspectives are. And so, yeah, my billboard would definitely hit people in the face with something that makes them really, really reconsider how they think about their institutions. I think that is definitely the kind of attitude change that we really need. Yeah, and I think that, that quote is, is a very powerful choice because it, it highlights the kind of huge demand that decolonization ultimately poses. Is there anything I should have asked but didn't? Anything you would like to add? I think the only thing I would add is really to encourage listeners to take a look at the report, dip in and out of it, focus on the testimony that's in there. 
Um, and a lot of that is actually really easy to find because kind of in terms of how we format things at Happy, a lot of it's in italics and it's separated from the rest of the text. So it's easy to kind of flick through this report for something as little as 15, 20 minutes and really come out with some important perspective changes. I think, you know, what I'd really add is that decolonization is a process. It's not something which we can start at the beginning of one term and it's ended by, you know, the spring term the following year. It's about changing the way that we view our institutions and as the report says, it is a completely vital and necessary step in order that we can continue to educate young people and to actually educate them so that they can face the modern world. I think that is really the demand of decolonization, but the real reward if we do it. Yes, I fully agree. And I'll link to the report in the show notes. So thank you very much for your time, Mia. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much, Lucas. Really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Education for Social Change. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. And also have a think whether there's anything you can do personally to push forward this important decolonizing agenda. This now concludes the first season of Education for Social Change. I'll take a little break to work on a mini-series inspired by the last two conversations with Minerva and now with Mia. I will consider why many universities appear to have no specific plan to provide general education alongside subject specialism, or even for how to teach their subject specialism. And I will look at initiatives that rethink university pedagogy and enrich the student experience. So if you have any thoughts on this, or suggestions for guests I can talk to, please email me. As always, the email address is in the show notes. Until then, take care and stay tuned.